Renee Fair has an advocacy and consultation service that deals, thankfully, with the issue of domestic violence. And uh, I was looking at your site and your information, Renee. I have one suggestion, okay? Do you mind? Just one? Yeah. And that is, you say all women have the basic right to be free from domestic violence. Personally, me being a guy and having been the victim of domestic violence and abuse, I wish it said everyone has the right. Nice, Burl. Everyone has the right. Nice. So I wish you would make that slight change because it's hard to find a shelter for battered men. So, having lived through it, I testify to it. And I'm glad you're doing this because it's very important. You mentioned that your sister, who obviously you love dearly, was a victim of not merely domestic violence and abuse, but actually domestic abuse caused death. Yeah. And uh, tell us a little bit about your sister, her background, what kind of person she was, and how she wanted to marry this guy. Yeah. So, um, Cheryl, my sister, was the oldest of four girls born to a father and a nurse, or a farmer and a nurse. And um, very... Typical of a firstborn, shy, compliant, we were born and raised on a farm, uh, entertained ourselves outside, and she was uh, very much into animals, and there really wasn't an animal she couldn't rescue or tame and make into a pet, which is what she did. She grew up, went to college, and to no surprise, she became a nurse. Um, and specifically, she became a nurse in the neonatal unit of a hospital where she worked with um, babies and babies that particularly had issues when they were born. Um, met this guy in high school, and I think that was the first person that probably ever paid attention to her. And I think that was it. She what did, uh, what did you think of this guy? What did the, the mom, dad, friends, this guy seem like a, a good fellow for her? Or did you have kind of misgivings? Uh, you know, it was fun because he came around and he brought other boys and there were three more girls. And so that was interesting at first. But he wasn't nice to her. Uh-oh. That's what we would say. And he was, he was insulting he, he would make her cry in oh. front of us. I mean, there was nothing she could do right. Well, and, hell's bells. I bet he wound up yeah. isolating her from the family to a certain extent sooner or later, didn't he? Yes. Absolutely. You know, the ever sliding scale of perfection. Sliding scale of perfection? Yeah, it always yeah. moves. Never, it never always moves, no matter what. Yeah. She's going to do it wrong. Right. It, right. There was nothing she could do right. And he wanted to tell her everything she could do or shouldn't do or should do better. Whoa. Um, the guy's never going to be satisfied. She's never going to do it right. Right. Sounds like, a, you know, he took a Narcissism 101 and took it to the extreme. Yeah, uh, I uh, think so. <laughs> now, you'd see evidence, physical evidence of abuse. And probably she had some explanation for that, you know, like a, the door hit her on the way to the bathroom or something. Yes, yeah, and that, you know, you have to remember the time frame that this happened. It was when she was killed, it was October of 1990, and I like to say that was pre-OJ. Yeah. So it was before domestic violence was really talked about openly or, you know, on the news or on TV or discussed like that. And and we we didn't like Greg. I didn't like him. 
and I didn't like the way he treated her. But my sister and I would talk about, you know, it's it's her choice, and if that's who she chose, we would keep our mouth shut and be be respectful of her decision. You know, I don't know that if I had the chance to do it over, I would do that, knowing what I know now. But you know, we were young. And yeah, I the longer you wait for it to change, the longer it doesn't change. Right. And, and so it's just going to get worse, and uh, it's it's so tragic having seen it, uh, lived it, been through it. Uh, it's just a, it's a rough situation. You want to you want to help, you want to reach out, but then again, you don't want to interfere. And you have the cultural norms. It just becomes very emotionally draining for everyone. It must have been very hard on you and your parents. It was extremely hard on us. And, uh, you know, from the time she said she wanted a divorce, which was in the beginning of July of 1990, to when she was killed October 5th of 1990, that was sheer hell. It was just intense um, fighting and accusations and, uh, you know, he's going to do this to her. It was it was awful. Ooh. And there's no way of getting protection or uh, restraining orders or probably never even occurred to anyone at that time. Well, she did have them. But they were, you know, they're a little bit different. He actually went to court and got one first. Ooh. Because he accused her of being the abusive one when she was just defending herself. Yeah, she she hit him with her eyes. That's why they were black. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then she got one. And then they both had them, but back then, you know, judges didn't understand and appreciate a lot about it either. And that eventually there was an order entered where the kids would stay in the house and the two of them would rotate in and out. Whoa. So they still had to cross paths with each other and have access to the house. So the restraining orders that was really set up to be very effective. Yeah. Now, I, I understand, having re- read some about this case, that one night, uh, convincing her one of the boys was sick, he got her into the home and then tied her to the bed and attempted assault? Yes. Yeah, and I always refer to that as the first time that he tried to kill her. Because he did. She was working late. The youngest one had asthma. He convinced her to come by and check on the youngest one and got her into the bedroom and he had ropes already tied to the headboard and tied up her hands and sexually assaulted her. And then she got away, um, uh, but he kept putting a piece of paper in front of her trying to get her to sign it. And it said that um, she consented to sex with him. Yeah, I could tell by the ropes. You know, why would would anyone need uh, documentation of uh, of an encounter. Ridiculous. What was that? The documentation? Yeah, he he wanted her to sign a note that said the sex was, was consensual. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, every husband and wife have that. Every time they have sex, they fill out a form, have well, it notarized. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, this sounds like a really sick situation all the way around. What about the kids? Was he abusive to the children as well, do you know? Um, I believe that that is what prompted her to ultimately leave him. She, she told me 
he he can do a lot of stuff to me. I can handle it, but I won't allow him to abuse my babies. And she started to confide in bits and pieces of him being, I would call it abusive, where he spanked the oldest one so hard because he got out of bed to get a drink of water that he peed his pants. Oh boy. Um, once she came in and he was, the oldest one was sitting in the kitchen chair and obviously, in Greg's opinion, had misbehaved and he had his hands and feet duct taped to the chair the legs of the chair and the arms of the chair. Now, what did uh, her loving husband do for a living? What was his career? He, after high school, went to um, uh, junior college and uh, got a degree with diesel mechanics and did diesel mechanics for a while. And then at this time, he was working at Southland Distribution Center. Um, I think it was a great big warehouse that... distributed goods to like a 7-Eleven or something. So he was able to hold a job, didn't uh, get into fights with his co-workers, he took it all out at home, apparently. Yep. It's a desire for power, control, manipulation. They finally had a divorce. She got sole custody of the kids. Two weeks later, she was dead, right? Um, there, there was not the divorce. It was, um, they had a, a a temporary hearing or an emergency hearing after the first time he tried to kill her, mm-hmm. and the judge did give her um, sole uh, custody of the children and gave him supervised visitation. And um, it was two weeks after that that she ended up dead, and so they. That's part of the issue with the whole case was when um, he killed her, the divorce had not been finalized. And so in Illinois at that time, the kids were basically like a piece of property and they reverted to the sole surviving parent. Mm. Oh boy. So, did, uh, yeah. did you or, any, or anyone in your family attempt to get the kids away from him? Uh, pardon me, did we attempt to do what? Get the kids away from him. Yes. Yeah, we spent years uh, fighting him for custody of the kids. And in fact, after she was found deceased, the kids were left at the property alone, and my parents had heard it through the grapevine and arrived on the scene and um, took the kids gave them to a neighbor and then I actually on my advice told them to take the kids and hide them until we could figure out what we were going to do um, and went to court and there was a shelter care hearing and so under the circumstances they gave my parents um, emergency uh, temporary care of them but there wasn't they didn't have standing as grandparents with the other parents alive oh boy. so there were legal battles that went back and forth at one point Um, He had taken the case up to the appellate court and the judge reversed the ruling and he took police officers and went into kindergarten with the police officers and plucked the oldest one out of a, you know, circle sitting on the floor and took him because he then had custody of him. (laughs) Very traumatic. Oh, man. But that's just the kind of person he was. I mean, this is a six-year-old child. 
Uh, One of the most upsetting things, I mean, the whole thing's upsetting to me, but in reading about this case, when she didn't show up for her shift at the hospital, a colleague phoned the house and uh, her five-year-old son said, Mom's asleep in the garage. That just chilled me to the bone to read that sentence. Because you didn't have to, even with nothing before that, knowing about this, just that sentence alone... Because that same exact thing happened in my family years ago. Except with a slightly different reason. But mom asleep in the garage. Mom wasn't asleep in the garage. Mom was dead in the garage. Right. Uh, He went on to say, with a rope around her neck and I can't wake her up. Yeah. Yeah. How traumatizing is that? How old are the kids now? They must be... uh, what, about 30-something? Yep, they're all in their 30s now. How are they doing? They were six, six uh, three, and 15 months when it happened, so they're all in their 30s. Um, all of them have a college, a four-year college degree, and are um, gainfully employed. And uh, each of them are married, and they've each had... A child, and Cheryl always wanted a girl, and each of their children were girls first. Ah. <laughs> so oh, good. Grand, good. Granddaughters. Yeah. Now, you mentioned in the material that I have in front of me here that did you say he killed her and set it up to make it look like she committed suicide. Uh, how did he set that up? Um, from, well, he, he had a pipe. Um, across the rafters in the garage. He was a deer hunter, and that's where he used to hang and dress his deer. And there was a yellow nylon rope that had been looped over that pipe. So, you know. It doesn't fit. doesn't work. Yeah. doesn't right. work at all. Now, uh, right away, what happened? Was, was he charged with anything? Was there any reason to charge him with anything? Did it look like suicide to most people, despite the obvious fact that it wasn't? You know, my family, and I, I just don't talk to anybody who didn't immediately think, other than his family, that he killed her. I mean, it, we were working up to that, it had been that tense, and yeah, he killed her. But, for whatever reason, um, you know, they, there was a, a the coroner who came to the scene and said, I don't know why everybody's here. Basically, it looks like it's a suicide. Then her body was taken to um, Springfield, Illinois, and there was a medical examiner there who, in my opinion, did a horrendous job and couldn't really, you know, mm-hmm. tell what happened. Um, despite the fact that eventually they sent the case out to other medical examiners and other um, uh, forensic crime scene investigators and everybody unanimously said, oh my gosh, this is a homicide staged to look like a suicide. So, you know, I don't know. The, The state's attorney was young at the time. He hadn't tried a murder case. The county's small. There hadn't been a homicide in the county since like 1940-something on the railroad. 
and after the after she was dead the the original charges from the aggravated criminal sexual assault what I call the first time he tried to kill her yeah were still pending and I I really pressured the state's attorney to take that case to trial you know I want you to try that I know the victim's dead but you need to take that case to trial oh yes yeah get you know a little bit of uh, practice in and test the jury out and some of the evidence and his friends and get some testimony you know from some of these people and see if you can get some inconsistent statements or whatever so he did take that case to trial there was a lot of publicity it got moved in the county that got moved um, to a to a different county there were pre-trial motions one of them was to try and keep the jury from hearing that the victim was dead oh no because they found that they said that that would be more prejudicial than probative um, eventually the judge determined that there could be a statement read that the the victim had um, predeceased the trial but that's all the jury knew you know and they don't know why and there's nothing more that was said about it I think a jury especially back then thinks that if she doesn't show up she probably doesn't want to have anything to do with it well if she's deceased she's not going to show up and if she did it would make right. front page news everywhere right <laughs> but um, he was acquitted of those charges and uh, that was it was extremely devastating to the state's attorney and and to our family but the state's attorney after that would always say to me about the murder charges Renee there's no statute of limitations on murder someday somebody's going to talk yep as Burl Bear says it all comes out in the wash it's just a spin cycle that makes you crazy (laughs) that's right well, the years passed, and uh, your mom and dad would make trips to the state attorney, ask for updates on that case, and then we know what happened there. 2008, there was a a sea change, shall we say, in the whole approach to this. What happened in 2008? Um, the state attorney that was in office um, had left. He had an assistant that became state attorney, and then a young female ran against um, that state's attorney and actually won. Um, Her name's Dana Rhodes. At the time my sister was murdered, she was in college at Illinois State University and remembered her parents talking about the case. And um, she knew then she wanted to go to law school. She knew she wanted to be um, a state's attorney and, and potentially a judge. And she vowed that if she ever became state's attorney in that county, and this case had not been solved, she would solve it. And she started working on it again. God bless her. And it took, yeah, took her years, but she ultimately um, called and said that she wanted DNA evidence from the boys, and she was pursuing the case, which we were a little stunned at that point because it had just been years Years and years, yeah. Yeah. So in 2016, 26 years after Cheryl's death, an inquest was done leading to a coroner's jury ruling her death a homicide. They noted the bruising on Cheryl's neck was inconsistent with the hanging. Two months later, her former husband was arrested and charged in Cheryl's death. 
<laughs> what happened next? It must have been a trial. Uh, yes, after he was charged, um, there was a bail hearing. We were able to testify about last time he was out on bail. He killed Cheryl. Um, please don't allow that to happen again. So, so bail was denied. He was kept in prison, and there was finally a trial um, around the 4th of July of 2017. And um, he was convicted at that time. So during the trial... seven years later. <laughs> so from what I understand, during the trial, prosecutors shared the transcripts from Cheryl's divorce case hearing, which she was seeking a protective order, details about the attack that happened two weeks before her murder, along with testimony from you, friends, to prove a, or establish a pattern of escalating sexual violence. They didn't have back then what they call the uh, 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 affidavit where... Because sometimes it comes up if you say, well, yeah, she told me he was doing this, he told me he was doing she told me he was doing that, as hearsay, because it doesn't come from her unless she recorded it somehow herself and documented it. But you could talk about what you saw, talk about what you experienced, the black eyes, the beatings, etc. Didn't take long for the jury to come up with an answer, did it? No, it did not. It was it was honestly it was kind of crazy how quickly they came back. I think they came back in less than two hours. They convicted of a first degree murder, sentenced to fifty five years in prison, and at least he's gonna serve half of that. I noticed what the judge said, quote, you'll spend a year behind bars for every year you've been free since you murdered her. That's justice for Cheryl. Yes. The whole thing not only must have been horrific for you from beginning to some sort of resolution and for the entire family. Yes. Um, but the conviction, even though it was 27 years later, um, you know, it's been a blessing. And the weight that lifted off our shoulders and my parents who are still alive, they're in their 80s now and got to live to see justice for Cheryl. My sisters and I say it added 10 years to their lives. Oh yeah, the stress alone is just uh, debilitating that whole situation. I want to remind our loyal, loving audience that the details of this, in real detail and fascinating detail, now in a book, book called Wheels of Justice and it uh, just came out from Wild Blue Press and uh, already is getting noteworthy reviews and people talking about what an incredible book it is uh, shocking in so many ways heartbreaking and yet ultimately redemptive shall we say for the release that you got emotionally and your family got from this conviction wasn't easy no no, it wasn't, and I, I think people, you know, there's a lot written about victims and victims who get away. You know, Cheryl was a victim, but she didn't get away, so she couldn't speak. But one of my goals is to point out how many other victims there are in addition to the person who's suffering the abuse. What I think is important, I couldn't think of the term, I couldn't think of the term a few minutes ago, but the evidentiary, evidentiary abuse affidavit. And that is, if you are being a victim of domestic abuse and violence, 
don't just tell your sister about it and tell your folks about it, but somehow, if you can, record it on your phone, record it somewhere, upload it to a cloud, because then it's in your voice. And it's, it's not hearsay then, it's you saying it. And if, God forbid, if you get murdered, there is this evidentiary abuse affidavit by the person who, unfortunately, is deceased, saying what they feared was going to happen. And that can make all the difference in the world, legally, in a case against the perpetrator, being male or female. It's interesting yeah, that, I, that the... Uh, I would agree. Yeah, that was uh, our friend uh, Susan Murphy Milano came up with that, bless her uh, heart and her soul. She's gone now, but uh, she was here. her memory lives on with the evidentiary abuse affidavit. Interesting, the defense in this case always maintained that he was innocent, but most of the state's evidence was devoted to proving that Cheryl's death was not a suicide. The state presented evidence at the time of Cheryl's death when he faced those sexual assault charges, uh, which alleged Cheryl as the victim. He was acquitted, as you mentioned. And it was Greg that filed for divorce before Cheryl's murder. Now, there were also some witnesses testified as to her character, what they saw, what they experienced. Uh, and yet there were problems. I certainly hope this fellow was guilty. I should say, if, I, if she was obviously murdered, and I hope he was the right guy. Because from a legal standpoint, there are some problems with the case, as I'm sure you're well aware. That uh, there's no direct evidence, hardcore evidence, linking him to the murder. And that well, must, must have been problematic. Well, at the time it was tried, there was... DNA evidence, and I think that was key in obtaining the conviction. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, a condom left at the scene, and back then, the DNA um, testing wasn't near as sophisticated as it is now. Right. And it just, it was, it couldn't exclude him or her. They, that was actually preserved, and um, that was key to Dana bringing the charges. She re-sent that in with the current DNA um, testing available, and it came back um, as conclusive as it could that it was her DNA on the outside of the condom and his on the inside. Well, that seems fairly <laughs> distinct. I mean, that more than I anticipated. There was yeah. also blood there that never could figure out where it came from, whether it was more contamination or, or where it came yeah. from. But That, was, that a, was one of the big things we, we worried, you know, that that might be the reason we'll doubt. Here's this spot of blood that is on her nightgown and we can't identify whose it is. Um, and, you know, we eventually had um, one of the original forensic investigators, Rod Englert, who's um, fairly famous and has written his own book, um, was able to, to talk about the way the blood um, hit the nightgown and then um, find out that it wasn't even in pictures from the scene. It appeared later. Yeah, that probably and, is indicative of, of uh, board contamination. Yeah, and then the people from the morgue came and testified as to the protocols that were in place back then versus now, and it was it was very different. 
Oh, yeah. In fact, what they used to do is before they gave the body to anybody, it was thoroughly washed and cleaned before people examined it. <laughs> Taking away any potential evidence. Uh, yeah. We've wised up since then and don't do that, but that that was a real problem in a, a case in my hometown years ago. Yeah, we washed those bodies before we turned them over to anybody. Thanks a yeah. lot. Yeah. Uh, now, let's get down to the nitty-gritty of the book. How did you happen to decide to do a book, and how did it happen to come to fruition? You know, I had said for years that someday I ought to write a book, and I think a lot of people say that. Like, oh my gosh, I ought to write a book. Yeah, they wish they already After had, the, is what it means. Yeah, yeah. After the trial, um, I got serious about it and said, no, I'm, I'm really going to do this. And I started researching. I mean, I'm not, I'm a lawyer. I'm not trained to, to be a writer, and that's nothing I ever want to do. Um, and so I started researching it, and went to some conferences and hired a coach and wrote a few things and it was it was slow and painful. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. You had to relive everything. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't know, I wanted to write like a lawyer and not like a, a story. It was, it was, I took too much time uh, over every single word. And I finally, in speaking to Bod Engler, who had been the expert in the case, um, I discovered he used a ghostwriter to write his book. And so I started researching those and um, found an agent and then found a ghostwriter and he and I ended up um, really working well together and ended up co-authoring the book. Um, Brian Whitney is his name. He's written a lot of true crime. He does a fantastic job. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, like I say, the book is being very well received uh, and is should almost be required reading, I think, for people who are concerned or interested in the whole issues of domestic violence and abuse. Uh, it bothers me tremendously to think of the number of individuals who have died at the hands of their significant other and nothing nothing in this life came of it. And, uh, yeah. I say, do people yeah, get writing the book, I did a lot of research, and and it's crazy, I, I mean, how many similar stories are out there, but people haven't found the end that we got to. And, and a lot of it is, I mean, I think it makes a difference. I'm an attorney, and I, I wasn't intimidated by the system, and I'm pretty persistent. You know, it's it's overwhelming to a lot of other people who, oh, hell yes. who are intimidated by the system and the people, and they don't know what to do. Yeah, it's uh, there's so many temptations to wipe it away or to buy it off. Uh, I don't know how this related. Last night I watched the movie on Netflix called Worth about the the settlement financially for the uh, the people in uh, 9/11. And uh, how do you put a value on human life? How do you you know uh, rec rec can't even see the word recompense people for their loss? Mm -hmm. uh, it was a fascinating film, and I suggest people watch it. It was also heartbreaking and a bit inspiring too. Uh, it's not easy. It's not, you're dealing with human lives, human emotion, 
families in pain and you can't just run a mathematical formula on what the value of a human being is. You know, whether it's a CEO or a janitor, it's still a human life. Right. Can't say one's and that's uh, worth human meant something to other people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a very, very difficult situation. And uh, uh, congratulations, shall we say, if that's the right word, on having emerged from this, not only having found justice in this situation, and by bringing the perpetrator to justice, and he's in prison now, but the book that came out of it hopefully will save some lives. And personally, which is the only way I can speak is personally, uh, when I write true crime books, I always try to raise the victim's death to the level of sacrifice. That hopefully in telling the story, other lives are saved. And I think that's the situation with your book. I think your book is going to save lives. And, And in that case, your sister didn't die in vain. Oh, thank you so much, because that is, Cheryl would not have, she was a helper. I mean, she was a born nurse, a born, you know, I want to take care of people. And if if she knew that she kept somebody from, from further abuse or helped somebody get out of it or helped kids not have to live in it anymore, she'd be really proud. Uh, because she would want others to be helped by what she went through. Did you feel at any time and during this whole thing of writing the book that uh, that perhaps your sister was there in some some way? Yes. Yes. There were, uh, it was very therapeutic to write the book, but there were moments when, I, I mean, I, I felt, I honestly could feel her presence. And, um, you know, I, I, I do think she spoke through me through a lot of that. I agree. I'm sure she did. At least from my experience in, uh, got about 20 of these books on some horrific cases. I always put the victim's picture right there on my computer so I remember at all times who it is I'm writing about. You know, whose life it is. Yeah. And uh, when I first started doing this, just on an interesting little note, Gary C. King, who's a very well-known true crime writer, when I went to write my first one that was really a horrific case, he said, be prepared to cry a lot. He says, you can't write one of these books and deal with these situations without having some sort of an effect on you. It's one thing if you're an EMT and, you know... uh, you're used to dealing with this sort of thing on a daily basis, saving lives and losing lives in the process. Uh, I wasn't, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's very emotional and can be very emotionally draining. I know true crime writers who stopped writing true crime because it was just too hard, too emotionally difficult because some huh. of the cases are so horrific. Uh, fortunately, hopefully this is the only one like this you'll ever have to write. I I hope so. <laughs> I don't want to do another. them again. Once was no. enough, really. Tell me a little bit about your organization, your advocacy and uh, consultation business there. Yeah, I I love to um, teach and educate and share the story because I think telling true stories um, provide hope to other victims. I also believe that. 
it, that which you can admit shame cannot attach to. And so I, I like to speak um, at organizations. I spoke at um, domestic violence panels and various things um, without shame. A lot of people attach shame to getting into the domestic violence situation. And, you know, I've, I've ended up being a very successful person and I'm, I'm not ashamed that my sister was a victim of domestic violence and couldn't get out of it and died. And I want people to understand it's, it's not their fault. And um, they need help, and there's people out there to give them help. Yeah, there didn't used to be, but there sure is now. Yes, it's changed a lot. Um, things have changed a lot since... Um, you know, Cheryl found herself in that situation, although she went to a shelter and and sought advice and help, and they were helpful. Um, but there's so many more of them out there, and there's so many more resources online um, for people um, that are, are that are so helpful. But it is it, it's nice if if family can get involved and be the support because it's hard to do alone. It's hard to get away from these people, and it's oh, hard to. Definitely get your mind, you know, uh, reset that you really are enough and you really are good. And he's just filling you full of, <laughs> you know, nonsense. Yeah. One of the, the shocking things that a lot of people don't realize is that in many towns and uh, if you call the police a lot because your significant other is beating the crap out of you, you can be evicted for too many police phone calls, too many police visits yeah. to your home. That's shocking to me uh, that you could actually... But fortunately, uh, Housing and Urban Development has policies now that even if you let the person back into the home, it's not your fault. <laughs> because you're doing it out of fear, doing it out of self-protection. It could be worse if you don't let them in. Uh, and so now there's rules in place that, that you can't be punished for being a, an abuse victim, male or female. And that's a significant advancement. Because yeah, it used to be, uh, oh, oh, there's always these problems. Cops are always coming to the, your apartment. Uh, we're going to have to evict you. Or you keep letting this uh, person back in and then they beat you up again. You know, what's the matter with you? Well, what's the matter is they're scared <laughs> and trying to save their life. It's a very complex situation. It, it is. Domestic violence is extremely complex. And it's, it's I mean, it is a form of brainwashing. I mean, they, they liken it a lot of times to um, people who have been kidnapped mm -hmm. and, and held hostage or hostage. Right, like Stockholm Syndrome, yeah. Yes, exactly. It's, uh, <laughs> so it, it is complicated and it takes it takes a lot it takes a lot of support to get out of it um, but I just want people to know that they they can get out of it and there is support for them I had a, a person call me one time and said Burl do you know of any dysfunctional relationships that work <laughs> I said no that's why they call them dysfunctional relationships because they don't work and in this particular abusive situation, she kept going back to him, kept going back to him. And I said, why do you keep going back when you know it's going to happen? 
He says, but who else is going to take care of him? Mm-hmm. And you probably heard that yeah. one before, too. Yeah. They get uh, so beat down, so doubting their own self-worth because they've been told so much that they're not worth anything. They start to believe it. Which, of course, is usually the goal of the person who's abusing them. Right. And they think they can change them, or they didn't mean it, or it was their fault. And if, yeah. For instance, if my sister had only gotten dinner on the table at 5 o'clock, he wouldn't have had to pick up the plate of spaghetti and throw it at her head. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Sure, tell me more about the new logic. <laughs> yeah. But that, you know, you're right on. That's exactly the way it gets. I've seen it so many times. That uh, it's just, you know, it's almost become stereotypical. It's like a template. You can see the progression, the isolation, the self doubt, all these things, whether male or female, to where they just are lost, lost touch with who they are, what their own worth is as a human being, and they just want to grab them and <laughs> shake them, except you don't want to shake them because that's not good either. Yeah. You, you know what I mean, I'm sure. You've probably seen it. Yeah. It's a rough one. Yeah, it, it is. It is frustrating, and it's frustrating to be a family member or a you know a friend of somebody who's confiding in you. And you, I mean, I I was angry with Cheryl for years. I mean, angry. How could she get into that situation? Why didn't she get out? But I just, I didn't understand. I, I did not understand how complicated domestic violence is. Yeah, it becomes this whole, di- whole very perverse dynamic of control, manipulation, self-denial, excuse-making. Uh, yeah, I ran my face into his fist one day. I didn't mean to do it. Oh, it was an accident. <laughs> it was an accident, yeah. So, um, you are an attorney, is that correct? Yes. Uh, did you at some point change your specialty to family law? Um, I did do family law. Um, I practiced in private practice for 10 years, and I did do a good bit of it. I, I don't know that I could have done it my entire career. It's, it, was, it was traumatic for me. And sometimes I got a little too vested in the cases yeah. because I took it personally. That's the difficult part. The uh, f- <clears throat> first co-host of this show was one of the top family law attorneys in the country. Yeah, Don Waldman. Don Waldman. Wow. Yes, he, uh, he was he, such a sweetheart. He was a sweetheart and uh, he had cases that by God, I don't know how he was able to deal with them sometimes. They were just so Horrible. intense. Uh, and yet, that's what he chose to do. And, and he uh, did it brilliantly. Yeah. But as you say, when it's, it's that close to home and you've lived through something so similar, it's very difficult not to respond from emotion rather than simply try to have that de- legal detachment necessary. Yeah. And uh, that can be very problematic. It happens, as I mentioned, to true crime writers uh, also. We're sensitive souls. (laughs) We're very sensitive souls. The only source of joy we have is seeing you happy. (laughs) uh, I think that's why so many people who are in this field, whether they're uh, helping people with domestic violence or or write about it or or do true crime books, have to do something to lighten up 
Otherwise, it just becomes overwhelming. You have to have some sort of something, something pleasant and amusing to do to keep you from going into the depths of despair over every single case you deal with. The show, maybe? Yeah, the show is one of my outlets. <laughs> yeah, I get to play radio once a week. Yeah. And uh, what do you do for fun? Um, I'm pretty active outdoors. I love uh, hiking and anything, bike riding, gardening, anything therapeutic in nature. <laughs> yeah, well, that that helps. You, know, you got to get those endorphins yeah. going. Give yourself a sense of perspective that all life is does not consist of people hurting each other. Thank you so much. For being our guest today. Renee Fair, F-E-H-R. And the book is called Wheels Just of Justice. It's available right now. It's really uh, good read. Paperback and an e-book from Wild Blue Press. Buy it, read it. Thanks for, for joining book. us. Thanks again. Hey, uh, Pearl. Yeah. What's next? Magic Matt Allen and the Demons of Decadence Live in the Lighten Up Lounge on AlloRadioLive.com. Ow! Ah, this cheers me up. Oh, Charlie Watts is gone now, but his drumming lives on. Oh, I think death is a bitch.